Good evening. Oh, well, that was kind of sad. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> Let me pray for us, please. Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather with your people once more. Lord, I pray that we would be hungry for your word tonight. That, God, you would speak to us through these words, Lord God, the unchanging truth concerning your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help me to speak, Lord, clearly and with brokenness, Father, that you might be glorified and seen in all things. Help everyone to listen in a way that glorifies you. Father, I ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, I just real quick, I just wanted to clear up something from this morning just in case it was unclear. I, I am not anti-potluck. <laughs> If I, didn't, I didn't know if it came out that way or not. I, I asked my wife in the car, I said, when I was trying to make that point, did it sound like I was anti-potluck? She said, no. I thought, oh boy, okay. <laughs> Let me just, just, just make sure. <laughs> no, I was just trying to make a point. I was trying to make a point. I am all for covered dishes. The more the merrier. And I'm a big meatloaf fan. So, <laughs> Well, what follows... If you remember, we spent the last two times we were together for preaching. I know we had that gap in there, but uh, we spent two weeks on chapter 1, verse 17. And what follows 117, as you'll see, is not a detailed description of how to survive in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. It's not a description, really, of Jonah or the fish. The focus is on Jonah and God. And so God's prophet has been rescued from drowning, even though he was fleeing from God's word and God's will and on his way to Tarshish he's finally thrown overboard during a storm and then is swallowed by a great fish because God pursues sinners and he rescues them he is merciful and missional and sovereign and he is a great savior there is no one like the Lord there is no one no rock like our God there is no redeemer but him so chapter 2 brings us then inside the belly of the fish the action stops for a chapter. It just stops and we sit there and we look into the pitch black, dank, smelly, disgusting darkness inside the belly of a fish. Keep in mind, it is pitch black with God's prophet, Jonah. That's where we are. So let me read in chapter 2, the first nine verses we find there. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now Jonah, you figure, never in his life 
imagine that he would be here in the belly of a fish somewhere beneath the surface of the Mediterranean Sea. But when we run from God, when we run from his truth, we think that it puts us in control, that it will put us back in the driver's seat. But as we've learned, obviously from 117, we don't write our own stories. And when the hound of heaven, the sovereign Savior, is on our trail to rescue us, we will not win. In fact, we may end up somewhere we never intended to go or never wanted to be, but God will find us. There's nowhere we can go that He won't see us. So there is salvation for disobedient, resentful rebels like Jonah. And that's the whole point of the story. So this is a, when you read 1 through 9, this is a very rich and beautiful psalm, really. That's how it reads. That's what it looks like. Everything in it is true. Let's make that uh, distinction immediately. Everything in it is true. But I want to try to make a distinction because I think the text does between what is being said and its worth for our hearts and who is saying it. It's not possible to know Jonah's heart for sure, what he's really truly thinking beyond what we find in the book itself. And the surrounding context here And the way Jonah is described overall throughout this book make me think that at the very least, this prayer is not from a broken heart. It's from a desperate heart and a stubborn heart, which makes the deliverance in verse 10 when we get there all the more stunning. As nice as this prayer is, something is glaringly absent. And we're meant to notice that it's absent. It is a glaring absence. There is zero repentance. None. There's no sorrow over sin. There's no shame. There's not even a mention of or an attempt to deal with what he had done that had gotten him in the belly of a fish in the first place. He just glosses right over that. So if there's going to be repentance in the book of Jonah, it's not going to come from God's prophet. That's amazing. That kind of attitude, that refusal to repent, even when it's obvious that we should, is driven by presumption. It's driven by self-righteous arrogance. And and Jonah, listen, he, he knows all the right words. He does. Remember, this was a prophet, and he's a Hebrew. That's the first thing Jonah says about himself in verse 9, when, they, when, when he wants to tell his story. The first thing out of his mouth is, well, I'm a Hebrew. So he knows all the right words. And he must be good. If he's a Hebrew, he must be good, right? And there's a very clear connection, by the way, between that kind of attitude and Jonah's attitude towards Nineveh. They go together. And I'm going to be a little rough on Jonah here, but not in a self-righteous way and not for the sake, uh, just for the sake of being critical. I think evaluating this prayer in light of the context, specifically what Jonah will say in chapter 4, right, kind of immediately following, if we set that alongside what he says here, they don't make any sense. And it reveals that Jonah had a deceived, I think, And I think eventually Jonah was rescued. I think Jonah is probably the one that wrote this story or wrote this book, but I think he has a hard heart while it's happening. I think he believes what he's saying, and I think what he says is right. But I do think Jonah is grandstanding a little bit. I don't think he's learned his lesson, at least not yet. And interestingly enough, by the time this book is over, there is still no resolution in Jonah's heart, not in the book of Jonah itself. Given the depth of what we read here, especially in chapter 2, it's just stunning the way the book ends then. Because here it seems like everything is good and everything is fine, but when we realize, wait a minute, he didn't even repent 
there's not even a sentence of it, not even a mention of it. He's just saying the right things. And it should surprise us the way the book follow, or, or what follows this. That's meant to surprise us. Again, you, you think when you read chapter 2 that, okay, we're in the clear, everything is good, but you find out very quickly that's not the case. As far as Jonah knows, these are the last thoughts he's ever going to have. The last thing he will ever say. So, of course, there's going to be a sense of piety in his prayer. And maybe that's the whole point. He probably thought being thrown in the sea was it. right? You wouldn't think, I'm going to be swallowed by a fish, and then three days later, I'm going to be safely vomited back up on dry land. You wouldn't think that's the way it was going to go. So when he finds himself alive and breathing in the belly of a fish, he seizes the moment and decides to get very religious, I think. Jonah being less than genuine and self-righteous in his prayer, his lack of any repentance deepens his predicament before God. It, it makes it worse. One, a predicament he doesn't even really realize he's in because he had sinned. Right? That's obvious from what he says here. He, he, there's no um, recognition of why he's there. He still has no idea how much he is in need of God's merciful salvation. That's the irony that makes Jonah what it is. How does this man not get it? How does he not see? He's in much in as much need for salvation as everyone else in the story. And this prayer, as rich as it is on the surface, absolutely, doesn't solve that problem. And again, that will be proven at the end of the story. But God saves him anyway, mercifully and completely. It's Jonah in front of us in the narrative, but Jonah is a book about a God who saves, even though nobody in the story deserves it. There's something to see in how Jonah is kind of like Job's friends. If you remember the book of Job. In how it is that truth can be communicated very well, but that doesn't always mean that the heart from which it's coming is pure before God, or that truth is being applied or used, so to speak, in the correct way. Just because it's being said, just because we know truth, does not mean we know how to apply it or use it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is not in man who speaks or professes. Jonah will not save Nineveh. God will. When chapter 2 opens, Jonah is in need of grace. Just like the sailors. Just like the Ninevites to whom he'd been called. Jonah forgetting that may be more detrimental to his mission than anything else. I, th- I think in our day and age, th- th- that is more detrimental to us being a missionary people than anything else when we forget that we are is in as much need of God's grace as the people to whom we've been called to proclaim it. When that's forgotten, when that is forgotten, all the motivation, when there's not, again, like this morning, when there, there isn't an abounding in thanksgiving for what we've been saved from, mission is is nothing more than a task that we usually find ways to avoid. And we become very resentful towards people that were just like us before God saved us, sent a fish, so to speak, to rescue us. By the end of the book, the evidence Job has for realizing that he was a vessel of mercy is as clear for him. It is so clear as it is for anyone else in the story, Jonah gets off the hook so many times. God is so merciful to him, and he refuses to learn. He is obstinate before God, and yet God doesn't kill the man. 
And that there's Old Testament precedent for that. You remember, it always makes me think of, of because the line is so... Uh, but but in, the, in the genealogy, in the opening of Genesis, it gets to Ur. And it says Er was his name. Ur was disobedient, and the Lord killed him. So th- th- that's on the table. <laughs> that's always on the table. Oh, you know what? I'm going to kill you. So it, it's, it's just... It, and Jonah just pushes and pushes and pushes the whole book. He just... He refuses to learn. And remember then, that's very important when you consider the greater biblical context of Jonah as one of those minor prophets in God's word. Uh, this was this whole story in its immediate context was a trumpet blast to Israel about her attitude towards the nations, about her self-righteousness, as it can become, not saying it is or that it always does, but as it can become for us here in America. If, beloved, if we define our faith by our patriotism and it corrupts our hearts to the point that we not, we not only don't love sinners, we can't see how blind we are to the fact that we don't. So, so what we love, we're going to know what we love by how we respond when it gets threatened. And so patriotism can, again, I'm not, just please hear me out, but it can reveal that we think something else is home. And when that gets threatened, the enemies of it are now our enemies. And instead of people to whom we've been called to give the gospel. So our, our, our pharisaical attitudes when they're there and disdain for people that don't believe in Jesus, um, for, for, you know, our disdain for people that don't see things like we do, for other Christians that don't get it, so to speak, like we do, or for people that are different from us, different nationalities or religious uh, convictions or lifestyles. It doesn't burden us that we can't stand them. It doesn't burden us that we disdain them. And it should. It should. It doesn't make things right or wrong in the objective sphere. Our heart towards people that are different than us, that are still lost in their sins, is supposed to be a loving heart. And when that's not there, something is wrong. And again, I'm not, I'm not talking about accepting someone else's sin or idolatry. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about excusing sin. Where did we get it in our heads that our task is to be sin scouts anyway? That's not the mission. So it's it's talking about us having a heart like this God that we're reading about. Like His Son who, rather than just destroying us all for our sins, became a human being and walked among us for 33 years and loved us and made a way for us. Remember, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not for the cleaned up version of us. The the wicked version of us. Can we not love people while they are what we were when He saved us? Again, not in a way that leaves them where they are, but that brings them home. So there's a lot of potentiality in Jonah that can be replicated in us for hardened hearts. It's there. This, This message still speaks Jonah's prayer doesn't come later after he had come to his senses or after he had been presumably, I think, hopefully restored. I think that's why we have the book, because he was. He does pray this prayer from the belly of the fish in verse 1. That's where he is when he says these things. And he does speak with faith as though he's already been delivered in verse 2. So maybe Jonah was dead. I I don't know, I don't think so, but at least very close to it. Maybe he had drowned or or come very close, because down in verses 5 to 6, it seems like he sank pretty far down 
into the, the, in, into the sea. And he acknowledges that God is responsible. That's interesting in a sovereign sense for his predicament. So he acknowledges that it is God who has brought him to this place in verse 3. That's a nice expression of sovereignty because the sailors are the ones that actually threw him in, but Jonah goes to the ultimate cause, the ultimate cause to understand his predicament. You cast me into the deep, he says in his prayer to the Lord. He prays in faith that even though he's been turned away from God, he will make it back to the place where he can come back into God's presence in verse 4. For him, that was the temple. That's his hope to get back there. He had sunk to the bottom of the sea in verse 5. He believes that God had literally saved him from death in 5 and 6. So he never stopped believing in God. Jonah never became an atheist. That wasn't his answer. You don't have to go that far in your heart to be completely separated from God. You can be very religious, very pious, and very far from God all at the same time. But he professes that he remembered the Lord, and he decided to pray to him in verse 7. Verse 8 is a beautiful picture of, or a beautiful principle of truth, and we'll come back to it in just a moment. But Jonah is speaking. Here's the thing. When you read that beautiful sentence in verse 8, Jonah is speaking as though he had never done what he describes in that verse. You notice that. Jonah says it as though he's never done it. That's why you get that conjunction at the beginning of verse 9. You know, those who forsake uh, the Lord, uh, you know, forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. So it, it's like he prays with presumption that he is not one of those who pays regards to vain idols, not Jonah. Jonah's, he's, you know, he's saying they're almost, I'm not like, you know, the Ninevites. And that is why he was rescued. That, that's, that's what he's thinking there. That is why he was not being forsaken by God in the belly of a fish, because he's not like people that, that turn from God to serve idols. You, you, you see that. If that's the case, Jonah has the guts to be arrogant in the belly of a fish. And that is almost the real low point for the man in the story. He makes a great profession that he's thankful and will perform his rituals, but that's very, very telling, that that's what he says, right? I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. So he makes a great profession that he's thankful. He's going to perform his rituals, but notice what he references there are sacrifices or are thanksgiving offerings. That's what Jonah is talking about. Or um, sacrifices of worship. And we know that because when an Israelite brought those, it wasn't uncommon for him to make a vow to bring more than was required out of his own free will, beyond what the law required, right? So Jonah isn't referencing sacrifices he needs to make for sin. You know, like, like he needed to do that, right? He's, he's just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go right to the temple and pay my vows that, that I, you know, I, as soon as I get out of this fish, I'm gonna go right to the temple and, and thank you. So he just bypasses the idea of needing to bring sacrifices for his sinfulness. He just keeps that out of the way. And then he bursts out with this beautiful, eternal, binding truth. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So Jonah's theology is correct. But Jonah's correct theology has not humbled his heart. It's all lips. If Jonah truly believed that salvation belonged to the Lord, then the rest of the book would be very different. 
he would understand then that it is the Lord's to give salvation to whomever he wills, including Nineveh. Rather than that making Jonah angry, he would have been thankful and worshipped God for it. He doesn't actually believe that. At least not in this moment. So, we can shout all the pious, righteous, religious sayings all day. We can say those things. Yes, Jesus saves, and God loves the sinner, but He hates the sin, and salvation belongs to the Lord, and and not have one ounce of true concern for the lost and the dying. Not have any sense of what we have been rescued from or what we deserved. Beloved, if, if we truly believe that salvation comes from God, and we don't earn it, and we can't earn it, if we realize that we don't deserve it and we got it for free because God rescued us, it is going to show in our attitude towards those who don't have it yet. That Those two things are unavoidable. So look at verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish. It's an amazing thing. And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I want you to notice that word, vomited. He could have said, the fish let him go. You know, or the, or the fish um, gently placed Jonah upon the dry land. That's not how Jonah was let out of the belly of the fish. The fish threw up. It vomited the man. You vomit because there's something in your stomach making you sick. Right? The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. God does not respond to Jonah's prayer at all. He does, however, speak to the fish who throws Jonah up. That's instructive because it's disgusting. So perhaps the reference to vomit is a picture of what God thinks of this prayer and of Jonah's rebellion. Salvation does not belong to us. We don't attain it by saying the right things. We don't earn it by doing right things and not doing Bad things. We can't come into God's presence and be accepted rather than obliterated by His holiness just by regurgitating some religious things and making some moral adjustments. Jonah's words don't save him. God's word to the fish saves Jonah. Jonah ends up back on dry land, safe and sound, because God is merciful and because God is on mission to save sinners. Nineveh is still out there. And God is still moving. So we're, we want to see in that that that's what God is like. That's His character. His loving kindness in the face of our rebellion is who He is. It's not like a robotic thing He does. This is where God's heart is here. Remember verse 8. Remember that. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That is so true. And so beautiful, nobody who trusts in the Lord will be without steadfast, eternal, cleansing, redeeming love. So we're not left alone here. We're not empty-handed, regardless of what we don't have. We are loved. It's only those who reject this merciful God, who turn to vain idols that they've made with their own hands, or have given a place of prominence to in their own minds, only they forsake the hope of steadfast love not the one who banks on God's merciful salvation. So with that verse on the lips of a sinner, because that's how powerful God's Word is, this verse reveals something about the depth and character of a God who loves His love, and only God's love is steadfast. Only His. 
It doesn't change. It doesn't go away. It doesn't do harm to its objects. Steadfast love won't be found in idols. It won't be found in God's substitutes. And everybody in this room knows that. Christian or not, there is no emptier feeling in the world when you finally get what you are sure would deliver the ultimate and it lets you down. And you have to go looking again. There's Everybody in one way or another has experienced that, that feeling of the bottom dropping out because what we thought would satisfy us and bring us peace and make us whole and make us happy, we finally get it and it doesn't deliver. And, and the world is, is, a, is a mass of, of what happens when that happens inside of people over and over and over and over again. It's just, it's, it's just a tragedy, and yet we do it all the time. We forsake our only hope of steadfast love to go after things that we'll never be able to give it, ever. Steadfast love won't be found in idols. Only God is an overflowing, everlasting fountain of love and beauty and satisfaction. Only God. And His salvation through Jesus Christ removes everything that prevents us from drawing near to Him. Jesus died and rose again to bring us to God, to let us know Him. This was a warning to Israel. That's that's its immediate function, that idolatry is useless It offers nothing that lasts, no matter what it is we're worshiping or how sure we are that we're right and justified in it. God saves us from our sin, from His wrath, from His justice, and from our desperation. That emptiness and inability to find a God who will satisfy the ache inside of us. We're so desperate for it that we literally worship other things. We love them. We put all our hope in them. We give them all our time and attention because we're expecting to get something from them. And Jonah, Jonah tells us, oh, that's not true. You know, if, if, if you go looking for that in anyone but the one true God, you'll be forsaken. You'll be forsaken. You'll never find it. His salvation is not then just a legal or positional matter, beloved. It's, it's a loving and a merciful one. Jonah has probably been vomited back up onto Palestinian land. Right? His, his flight had failed. God had brought him back to the place he started from to get busy with his original mission. God is relentless. He's relentless. And even more than in Jonah's time, because we stand on this side of the cross, this is what God is doing in the world now. He, he, he has us here on mission for a purpose. What would happen if we thought of ourselves as missionaries to Moundsville? Because I think that's what we're supposed to think of ourselves as. I think that's what you get from the book of Acts, that we have been placed where we are very strategically so that when that groping, because people are constantly forsaken by vain idols, they will find us who can give them the truth about the gospel, which is why it's so important that we don't have a hard heart towards people that don't know Christ yet. We're, we're in, in a very, I want to say this right, but we're the solution in the sense that we've been placed here so that they will hear the gospel. It's very hard to give a loving message to people you can't stand and resent. And, and Jonah is, is just a, a, a trumpet blast about that. Don't get hard-hearted towards unbelieving people. They're not the enemy. And let's say they are. What has Jesus called us to do? With our enemies. So there's just, there's no getting around it here. There's just no getting around it. In all this, 
even in the belly of a whale, God is saving. God is saving. He is merciful and full of compassion and delivers this sinful man from death. Beloved, Jesus Christ was not vomited out of the belly of the earth. In fact, he had time to stop and fold the cloth that had covered his face. He walked out of the tomb, walked out, forever the king, forever our savior. And whatever Jonah must have felt when he was sitting in the belly of a fish, it is nothing compared to the separation that Jesus must have felt when he was crucified. What Jesus experienced was total abandonment by God. Not even Jonah experienced that. Jonah got himself into trouble, and God rescued him. Jesus accepted the wrath of God completely, and not for his own sins, but for ours. Jesus cried out from the cross with a rejection not known or felt before or since, and that was for you and I, for our sins, for our sins, all of them, all of them, not just for those of other people, our sins. Jonah's expression of grief comes to fulfillment in the cry of Jesus at the cross. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane the night before. It wasn't just a metaphorical cup, really, that that Jesus asked would pass from him. To drink from the cup of sin meant absorbing God's wrath. It meant being forsaken by God. He was rejected that you and I might be accepted. And that was never supposed to get old. We were never supposed to get to a point where we thought, you know, I'm one of the good ones. I kind of earned this. I I had the good sense to receive Jesus when I heard the gospel. That hardens us. This is the God's mercy for us in Christ is the reference point of our entire existence. God's aim in salvation is to make us like Christ, to make us righteous, to define us by mission. He saved us freely, not to maximize our potential or give us a life of ease and comfort, but to conform us to the image of His Son, to create a people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth, not in empty rituals and rites. He has moved heaven and earth with the death of His Son to get us out, so to speak, of the belly of the whale, out of the darkness and death of this world. God's merciful salvation, which is foreshadowed here in Jonah, comes from Him. He has delivered us. He has moved upon us to do something we could not do. He is preparing us to live in a new heavens and a new earth. That's what God is doing in all of us who believe. And only when we begin to see that He works all the events of our lives to achieve that goal, even our trials and frustration and suffering, will we be able to embody the Spirit that would make 2, 1 through 9 genuine and authentic in us. When we turn from the Lord the way Jonah did, we close our hearts to a divine perspective on our fellow humans. You can't regard anybody anymore according to the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5. We need a divine perspective on the other people in the world. Because, it, because if we only are looking at them as, as citizens of a world we're trying to live in and stake our claim in, our heart is going to harden to the point that we, we won't be able to go to them with the gospel. 
And and and, and this 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 is what's happening all through Jonah. We we God opened his heart towards us. He didn't close it. He sent his son. He poured out his life for us. He was moved with mercy and love and pity for rebels, for blatant, willing sinners. If he did that for us, how can we treat others with contempt? Just, it, the, the, the question comes back to us again and again and again when we consider the implications of this little book. This is meant to shape loving one another and loving our enemies and those outside the body of Christ. That's, that's what the text is doing. But we don't want to embrace that idea most of the time. It's too easy to be the other way. It's too easy to just get so sick of the world that you can't stand them. And, and it becomes self-righteous contempt and judgment of other people. There, again, Jesus does not ban judgment. Jesus bans judging by appearances. He says, judge with right judgment. There is a right way to see other people, but it's not a, 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 a just judging them and then forming an opinion on them based on what we see. It's not what we're supposed to be doing. Because all, when, when, our, when our sight of other people stops at what we can see, we're only going to disdain them. Because all we're going to see is the fruit of what's really inside, and that kind of stuff is awful. Right? Well, we're not denying that. I'm not denying the reality of, of horrible things that people do and how hard it is to love them. I'm not denying that or saying that just, oh, stop it, get over it, and start loving people. No, it, it doesn't work that way. What I would say is come back to the cross and just focus on the fact that you've been forgiven, that God let you off the hook because of Christ, that all the punishment you and I deserve for our sin was poured out on Christ. That's going to have an effect. It's meant to be the thing that has an effect. I can... Preachers can make you feel so doggone guilty about what you're not doing. I don't want to do that. I, I, I want us to go to the cross and just realize what Christ has done for us and let that be the transforming fuel that makes us the people God called us to be. And it's, it's, it's so hard. Young people are too arrogant to change and older people are too stubborn to change. You know, we, we, we all need reprogrammed by God through the gospel. All of us, no matter where we are in, in life. Israel tried to achieve the promise by works and not by faith. One glaring effect of that was how it closed their hearts with contempt towards the other nations. All they had time to do was measure themselves, rate their own righteousness through the law, and they learned over and over that that didn't lead to more righteousness but either self-righteousness or usually and ultimately outright idolatry. idolatry. Which is why when God comes to the prophet and says, go to Nineveh, it, it shouldn't shock us that Jonah looks at himself, looks at the Ninevites as we're going to, to see and says, they don't deserve to hear the word. They're wicked. They're awful. And they were. We're not denying that. They, the Ninevites were horrendous people right in in a it, it's just it's an amazing thing in, in a different world you, you look at that and you say okay we we need preemptive strikes to get these people off the face of the earth like like that's the kind of people they were and in this instance i'm not saying it applies all the time the government has been given a sword there's a time and a place please don't misunderstand me but at this time god moves in mercy this is the god that commanded joshua and, and to, to wipe out canaan this is that God. 
Same one. So Jonah, that's the problem. That, that's why we have the book of Jonah, because something happened along the line in Israel. And Jonah's saying, they don't, deserve, they don't deserve to hear your word. They're wicked. We're righteous. They deserve death. We're your people. They're not. Why are you sending me to them? And it soured his heart for Nineveh. It soured his heart for them. Just like not focusing on the gospel today, but constantly focusing on ourselves and our goodness, or even our lack thereof, will cause us to close our hearts to the world around us. They're, beloved, they're doing what is in accordance with their nature. They're lost in their sins. They're dead in their sins. They need rescued. If we just stand on the sidelines and belittle them, we lose the ability to speak the gospel. They won't listen. And we, we, we need hearts that are constantly reminded of the fact that we belong on that side of the line. That's where we were. We got pulled out of that. Rescued. Because God sent a big fish Right? That, that's, that's what we need. That keeps us level. But Jonah just, you know, he's the all, you know, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like those tax collecting Ninevites over there. You know, we, we, we can pray and talk in the right direction until we're blue in the face, just like Jonah did in the belly of the whale. Everything in the book is very strategically placed. But if our hearts have not been moved by the fact that we need deliverance from God as much as they do, and that all this comes from the gospel, not from our flesh, we won't be able to love and we won't get on mission. We'll just say the right things and go through the motions and never change. All right, we'll keep doing the same things we've always done, getting the same results we've always gotten. When will the mundane get old enough to, to like want it out? That's how central the gospel is to who we are. We need to be in the shadow of the cross every moment and every day or we'll never see correctly. All those sinners out there, beloved, tonight, they deserve the gospel as much as you and I do, believer. Not at all. In that, we are just like them. We, we've been rescued. We didn't earn what we have. We've been rescued. Let's get to the foot of the cross and just sit for a while and see Jesus. Believer, we, like Jesus, share an identity with Jonah and his expulsive deliverance from death. One day the earth will give up its dead. The whole earth. And for those who are in Christ, we will be raised to life everlasting, all because of God's merciful salvation. Believe in that. Bathe in it. And then take it next door. Take it to the world. Moundsville needs the gospel. I guarantee it. And we need it as much as they do. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. I'll be down front here. If, if you need to come and pray, please feel free to do so. I'll be here. Father, we thank you for the time you've given to us, Lord, more time that we don't deserve to hear your word, to hear your gospel. Father, I pray that you would watch over our minds as we consider all these things. Don't let us... Um, explain away the, the depth of God's mercy towards us. Lord, give us eyes to see your Son. Give us eyes to, um, to see the glorious, undeserved grace of God that has just been lavished on us in Him. 
That's what I'm praying for, Father. I pray that you would watch over the hearts of your people, of our church, and over this town. Lord, that we might be salt and light in Moundsville for the people here. This we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.